right, you guys can be seated. Kids, all the way up through fifth grade, you guys can head to the back. If you want to open up to Acts chapter 17, that's where we'll start, but I'll be honest with you, we are going to be all over the place this morning. Acts chapter 17. I want to start with a couple of quotes for you guys. This first is from a guy named John Wycliffe. He says, the true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. These are his marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measures of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. Test all in the crucible of the Bible. That which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the flag which he nailed to the mast, and may it never be lowered. This is John Wycliffe, one of the forerunners of Bible translation and translating the Bible into English. He died of natural causes in 1384, but because of his willingness and his desire to uh, translate the Bible out of the Latin Vulgate into English so that uh, it could get out to more people and more people would be able to read the Bible. He was dug up, his body burned, and then his ashes scattered to the wind in 1415 because the Catholic Church did not like what it was that he was doing trying to get the Bible into everyone's hands. William Tyndall continued this translation. To, to this day, John Wycliffe, there's, a, there's an organization called the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and what they do is they are missionaries implanted into uh, communities, into uh, unreached people groups, and they go, they learn the language, they learn the culture, they learn the dialect, they learn everything about this culture, and then they will translate the Bible into these languages that do not have a Bible. It's the Wycliffe Bible Translators, still operating today. It's a wonderful organization. You fast forward uh, a, a little bit over 100 years, and you have a guy named William Tyndall who continues this, uh, this tradition of translating, this very uh, kind of underground tra tradition of translating the Bible into English. And he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. This is before a priest who was seeking to warn him and to uh, potentially prosecute him for what it is that he was doing. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. That's what he said to the priest. It was his goal to get the Bible into as many people's hands as possible, and he was willing to give everything for that. And in fact, in 1536, he did just that. He was strangled and then burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English and for teaching that that was a good thing to do. Martin Luther, the, uh, the, one who, the, the one who's given credit for sparking the Reformation, uh, was, was before a, a trial, brought all of his works out before them and demanded to recant of all of his works. And he very famously said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. He said God help me because he knew that whenever he said that, there was a good chance that that was probably his death sentence. That he would probably be martyred 
for not recanting uh, against his works and for uh, carrying out his own translation of the Bible into English and for the teaching that he uh, continued to persist in. Now, as it turns out, Martin Luther uh, was, 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 was never martyred, which is, to me, one of the just most amazing things in all of history, that he was not killed by the church uh, for the things that he did. But all three of these guys, all three of these guys were driven by one thing, the Bible. They were driven by the desire to teach the Bible, to know the Bible, and to get the Bible into the hands of the people. And frankly, to get the Bible into your hands. The rallying cry of the Reformation in the 15 and 1600s was sola scriptura, scripture alone. And the belief is that scriptures was to be our sole place to find authority in relation to to God. Now, when we say sola scriptura, this would be a, a, a rallying cry for us too. We don't mean that scripture is alone, that it is all by itself, and that is the only place that we go to. But what we mean is that we will find our sole place of authority located in scripture and the teachings that we find in scripture. So let me ask you the question. Why in the world would these men, Tyndall, Luther, Wycliffe, others, Coverdell, Calvin, I could go on and on and on, why would they be so willing to give their lives for a book? And it's a book. Why would they be so willing to die for a book? A book that many would deem old and out of touch. A book that many would deem to be uh, irrelevant for us today. Hard to understand. Barely worth the time to open it. Irrelevant for the, the 1500s and certainly irrelevant for us today. Were these guys misguided? Were they led astray? Were they, just, were they just too optimistic? Were they just too smart and maybe they saw something that nobody else saw? Or were they naive and gullible, tricked by uh, the church and tricked by others that they came underneath? Were they just backwards and bigoted? Why would they die for the the? the simple act of translating and trying to get the Bible into as many people's hands as possible. Listen, cards on the table before we get started here. I think that these guys were absolutely right. And not only do I think they were absolutely right, I'm betting my life that they were absolutely right. And whether you know it or not, you are too. You are too. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. We're going to have to kind of come back and kind of fill in some of the blanks with what I'm, what I'm saying here. But, and, and we'll come back to these reformers and their willingness to die for the Bible. And then we're going to ask a, a question that begs to be answered from this. Why are these guys willing to die for a Bible that we're barely willing to read? That's where we're going this morning. Now, if it sounds like, okay, so the preacher's got the, 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 the guilt trip ready to go. I know where this is going. I can kind of check out, come back in for the guilt trip at the end, and we'll be good. Just hang with me. I promise you that's not all it's going to be. Maybe there'll be a little bit of that, but that's not all it's going to be, all right? So, so hang with me, and let's just walk through some of this stuff. And we're going to go all over the Bible, and we're going to see what the Bible has to say about itself. And now, remember, we're in this series, Rooted. Uh, and what we're doing in this series is we're looking at some of the basics of what we do here on Sunday mornings, what we do here as a church. That when you walk in here and you see what we do, you say, I wonder why they do that. I wonder why they do that that way. I wonder what decision and what went into all of this. 
And this morning we're going to be talking about our Bibles. But before we do that, we've got to back up just a little bit. Because remember, what you see, the canopy of the tree, is fed by the roots, which is every bit as big, if not bigger, than the canopy that you see. And so we need to back up just a little bit and talk about the parts that you don't see. And what you don't know, or maybe you do know it, but you don't, we don't talk about it. So if you know it, then it's just something you kind of intuited. It's just kind of something that, you've, that you've, you've recognized as we've gone through and you've been a part of Providence Church here. But there's an underlying assumption behind everything that we do here at Providence. That whenever we gather, whenever we sing, whenever we pray, whenever we've done it all, we've done it with an assumption that goes almost completely unsaid in all of our gatherings. But it is so fundamental that we, would not bo- we wouldn't bother to gather together if this was not foundational for us here at Providence. And here, here's what that is. Here's that foundational underlying premise. We believe that God can be known. Here at Providence, we believe that God can be known. We believe that God is real and that we can know him. Now, if you grew up in church, that's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we do. That's, that's church. That's, yeah, we talk about God. That's fine. But to a huge chunk of the world, that is an absurd statement. To a huge chunk of the world, that would either be absurd or it would be blasphemous. One or the other. The atheist believes there is no God. The agnostic believes that, there, if, that if there is a God, we can't know him. He is far removed from us, and there's no way for us to know whether there is a God or not. And for the vast majority of religions in world history, the ability to know God was at best a mystery. It was a guess. It was a hope. It was a blind shot in the dark. Maybe this is what this God wants from us. And that was it. It was accompanied by blind guides guessing what they need to do, guessing about what they need to do to kind of appease this God that they have uh, kind of manufactured in their head and they have uh, assumed is out there. Trying to guess what it is they need to do to get this, this, this God to, to, to listen and to hear them. Trying to guess what to do in order to get this God to bless them and to, uh, to, 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 to not take the, the, the wrath of this God out on them. Whatever God they've made, they're guessing on how they can best approach this God. But all their appeasing is done in vain. Isaiah, the, the, the prophet, describes these worshipers uh, of gods that, that they don't know. In chapter 44, if you go through and read it, I'm not going to read it for, for sake of time, how to kind of cut some of this. But if you read chapter 44 uh, of Isaiah, and you want to know if there's sarcasm in the Bible, that's Isaiah chapter 44. He is mocking those that would worship idols that were made with uh, wood and stone. He's saying, what are you doing? You formed this with your hands. You're the one that, that baked this in the fire. You're the one that saw all this being created, and now you would bow down and worship it? Now, we may not worship idols exactly like that today, though I might push back on that a little bit, but at least not as obviously as what they do. But in Paul's day, he saw much of the same thing. It just looked a little bit different. And this one may ring a little bit more of a bell. So Acts 17, Paul is standing, in, uh, in, uh, standing on Mars Hill in the area, 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 whatever. You know what I'm saying. I can't get that word out right now. 
But he's addressing the scholars, he's addressing their religion, he's addressing everything that is, that is uh, uh, going on there, these learned men, these scholars of Greece, and he comes upon this statue, and it strikes a chord with him. And look, at what, look at what he says to these guys, Acts chapter 17. So Paul, uh, standing in the, why can't I say that? I say that all the time, I just can't get it out. Uh, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, there we go said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. We'll stop there for the morning. Paul is telling them what I am telling you today. There is no need for an inscription to an unknown God. We don't need to guess what God is like. We don't need to erect a statue and say, for all the gods that we may have missed that has not made themselves known to us, for all of these gods that are out there, we're going to put this one up there as kind of a catch-all. Paul's saying you don't need that. What you need to know is that we can know God. We do not need to guess about what God is like. We do not need to guess about what God wants. We do not need to guess about how God sees us. He is not an unknown God, but instead he is the God that has revealed himself to us. And as Paul says, he is not far from each of us. Now again, that is an astounding claim to most of the world. But if that's true, If that's true, that God has revealed himself to us and we can know him, there can be nothing more important than how he has revealed himself. There are two ways that we can talk about this idea that God has revealed himself. One is called, these are like kind of broad categories. One is called general revelation. The other is called specific revelation. General revelation, specific revelation. And this, re- this is general revelation we want to talk about first because it will set the stage for the rest of uh, the morning. This is revelation that is available to everyone. And given enough time and enough to uh, kind of time to meditate and discern and think through it just a little bit, everyone would be able to see this. Psalm 19 kind of echoes this just a little bit. Psalm 19 verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What the psalmist is saying here, very poetically, very beautifully, is that creation should pour forth the knowledge of God to us. We should be able to walk out on our deck tonight, look up at the stars, and say, God is powerful. He is awesome. He is everything that we hoped and everything that, we, that we, would, we would try to imagine a God to be. He is even bigger than that. We should be able to discern that just by looking up and seeing the stars. 
We should be able to walk out and see a flower and say, who created this? There's clearly a design here. Who did this? Who made this? It's, this is someone that we need to worship. We should be so awestruck that it causes our hearts to be stirred by the Creator. When we go places, like, like we went to Yellowstone here just last month. When we go places and we, we go to a place like Yellowstone and we see Old Faithful erupt and that geyser goes off, it should cause our hearts to erupt with praise as we, as we see the, the, the power of what God has done. When we do things like watch the Olympics, and maybe you think of the Olympics as like a celebration of all that hu- humans can do, which that's fine. But we mess up if we stop there and we say, look at how great humans are. Instead, what it should cause us to do is it should say, look at what God has created these people to be capable of. Look at what God has created people like us that really aren't like us. Whenever you see the things that they can do, God created those people and made them capable of this. It should stir our hearts to God. It is all his handiwork. But you and I know that somewhere in there, there's a short circuit. That somewhere in there, we can drive by a mountain and not blink. That we can drive, we, can, we, will, we will pull out of this place and we will drive by incredibly complex and complicated and detailed things. And we will not give a single thought. You know, the psalmist says, go, or the, the proverb says, go consider the, the ant. Just watch the ant, the little itty-bitty ant, and be amazed and learn from the ant. If that's what the, the proverb tells us, then think about all the other things that we drive right by, that we walk right by, and we don't even consider. General Paul knows this is what should happen. But general revelation doesn't always get us there. In Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. He said, it's no question. You walk outside, you can see his divine power, his eternal power, his divine nature, and the things that have been made. So we are all without excuse because we should be able to discern who God is from that. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping, creepy things. So we took this incredibly complex world that God has made and instead of saying, God, we honor you and we celebrate you, we begin to worship the things that he has made. And we create our idols and we worship the wrong things. Paul tells us we don't worship God as we ought. We should be able to see these things, but we don't. Our hearts get in our own way. Our sin has blinded us. But even more so than that, as spectacular as creation is, and as much as we should be able to discern much about God that we completely miss just from what we could see around us, There's only so much you can kind of wring from that sponge. 
Because no matter how, how much you spend staring up at the sky and looking at the Milky Way and watching a, a meteor shower or whatever, no matter how much you do that, that can never tell us what God is like completely. It can never tell you what God wants from you. It can never tell you why you don't have a relationship with that creator. It can never explain those things to us. We need something else to help us. And we're told we get two primary ways that this is done. Two ways in which the Holy Spirit will take these things and then write them on our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God has seen fit to give us the scriptures and to give us his son. God has seen fit to say, here is who I am, and here's how I'm going to tell you who I am. You get the scriptures, and you get Jesus. And in those things, you will know me. In those things, you will come to see who I am. And now we can know what he's like. We can know what he wants. We can know what we need in order to come to him. We can know his character, his grace, his mercy, his mercy, his wrath, his justice. We can know these things. We are not left grasping blindly and filling the blanks ourselves. So that is, the, that is what we call special revelation. Specific things that God has given us that we would know him. In John chapter 1, he writes it this way, again poetically. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything that made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What John tells us is that the word is Jesus Christ himself. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the, the word Jesus is the exact imprint of the father. That if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the father. And that God sought to communicate to us through the prophets, through the Old Testament scriptures, and now what he has done through his son. And so the underlying premise for what we do here at Providence is not only that we can know God, but that we can know God through these ways, through what has been given to us. Now, this is not general revelation that everyone at all times has with general application, but this is teaching that is specific to the nature and the character of God right down to the incarnation of the Son. Listen. If God has revealed himself to us, there is nothing more important than that. I know school is starting. I know life is crazy. I know that you've got to go like fight somebody for a pencil at Walmart this afternoon. Like I know you've got a lot going on, and there's a lot of stuff that demands your attention right now in the moment. I know that. I know you've got all kinds of stuff to get ready. I know you've got all these different things. But listen, 
In our life, if God has revealed himself, there is nothing more important than that. Nothing. The question, if he has revealed himself to us, then is what has God said? What is God like? According to the, to the scriptures themselves, what God has said is the scriptures and the Son. And when we know those two things, then we will know God. At least as much as he has given for us to know. There are parts of God, it tells us in the Bible, that there are things, that, 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 things of God that are God's that he will not reveal to us. But he has revealed to us enough for us to know him. I don't think we comprehend how astounding that is. We take that for granted. Listen, he didn't have to do that. He totally could have created the world, said, let's see what happens, then messed it up. I'll go find another world to do this in. He could have done that. But he didn't. Think about what Jordan said earlier, what, what Jordan said whenever she's up here. She said that, that, that it, it's funny when you read the Bible, it seems like God repeats himself a lot. Uh, you've heard me say before, repetition is the mother of all learning. Th think about this. Not only did God reveal himself, which he, he could have done what I do with my kids a lot. Like, hey, I gave you the instructions. I don't need to keep telling you over and over and over again. Like, right? Go clean your room. Go do this thing I've told you to do, and don't make me keep saying it again. But God not only reveals himself to us, he is gracious enough to continually reveal the same truths over and over and over again. Why? Because he knows what we need. He hasn't just revealed himself. He's revealed himself in a gracious way that we might know him. He could have revealed himself in this like big ball of fire as he comes down to consume us. But instead, he reveals himself in a baby born in a manger. Instead of coming to us in fire and in wrath, he comes to us in humility, a king born in a cattle stall. We don't comprehend how astounding that is. The implications for this are endless. I'll give you one that Paul writes about in 2 Timothy, verse 3, or chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. One application of the fact that God has revealed himself to us is that we, too, can become more like him. That's crazy. One implication is that we can correct and reproof and rebuke uh, others and ourselves in order to become more like what God has called us to be. The scriptures are here for us that we would know God and that we would know how to train ourselves to be more like him. You say, well, okay, th this is like, that's 2 Timothy, he's talking about the Old Testament there, right? That's the scriptures that Paul would have been talking about. And, and so far you said the prophets and the, the, the writings. So we're talking about the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? What do we make of the New Testament? Paul was just talking about the Old Testament there. Well, sort of, but not, not exactly. 
What we know from 1 Peter and from Paul and other places in Scripture is that even as they wrote, they recognized that their peers and that they themselves, their writings carried with it the same kind of weight and authority of those prophets and those Old Testament Scriptures. They take their cue from Jesus himself, who knew the time would come for, their, for them to write down their own contribution to Scripture. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking in John chapter 16. He says, I will have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what Jesus is saying is, you guys are going to need to write some of this down. You guys are going to need to think through some of this. You guys are going to need to teach some other people about this. But you really don't understand what's going on right now. You guys are kind of, you guys are kind of dense. But the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to explain this to you. He's going to write this truth on your hearts. And then you're going to need to be able to teach this to others and write this down. So Jesus saw the, the, the need for further scripture to come. Then you get to... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul kind of picks up on the scene, this, this theme. Listen to what he says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words. So the things given to us by God, by the spirit in our hearts, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom. So these are not words we're giving to you from things we have derived from human teaching, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. So the Holy Spirit is revealing things to us that we are then imparting to you. And if you have the ears to hear it, you will know this is from God. Later, Peter writes in regards to Paul's writings. He says this. This is a great verse. These are two great verses. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. You guys identify with that? I know I can. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So there's a couple of important things there. One... Peter is saying, Paul's confusing. I get it. I understand. I know you all are confused. I'm confused too whenever I read some of this stuff. It's okay. You're in good company because I'm Peter, an apostle, and I get confused. But also he says, how, he talks about how, it's interesting how Peter talks about Paul's writings. He talks about the other scriptures as though Paul's fit right into the same category as the scriptures. And so what we see is that, that as this stuff is being compiled, as these books are being written, these take on the same kind of authority and the same kind of weight. And right now, I so much want to go into talking about how we got our New Testament, how we got our Bibles. But if I did that, y'all, you would get no school supplies because we would be here for a long, long time talking through this stuff. But I want to say this. I want to say this as a bit of an aside. Somewhere along the line, y'all are going to watch something on the History Channel. Y'all are going to read something on the Internet. You're going to see something on TikTok. You're going to see something on YouTube. And it's going to say something like, well, the New Testament books were just 
formed by these like church committees that got together. And we know church committees are all just a bunch of idiots. And uh, you can't trust the New Testament because it was really just a politically driven thing and all this other stuff. And they're going to do that so that you'll click on it. But listen, I want you to hear me. There are answers for every one of those things. Not answers like, oh, we've got an answer just like, like, listen, the Bible did not survive the scrutiny of be, that it's been under for, for all these years just so that somebody on TikTok could be like, oh man, I never thought of that before. Like, that's not how that works. So I just want to say this. Before you watch something on YouTube or you watch some scholar on, on, uh, on the History Channel talking about the, the question about whether we should, be, should have accepted the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas and that wasn't included in our Bibles because they had some sort of agenda or something like this. Just You're going to have to trust me just a little bit on this, but I'm telling you right now, there are really good answers to that stuff. There are really good answers for how we got the books that we got. And I would love to walk through some of that with you. I do not have time to do that right now, but you need to know when you hear that, I don't want you to be shaken and be like, oh my goodness, this was all just a big political game. It's not. God has compiled this, the, these books for us to have authority in our lives. And there is a reason that these are the books that we have. All right, so I'll get off that soapbox and I'll come back to this and try to get back to the, the point I was making. I, as much as I would love to go on and on talking about this, the bottom line is I want you to know that behind all of what we do is this foundational premise, that God has spoken and that we can know him. And he's done it in the scriptures and he's done it through his son. And this is why if you go through our, our Providence 101, you go through our curriculum, we'll talk about our core values. The number one core value of Providence Church, the absolute authority of the Bible. The absolute authority of the Bible. This is what we say. God has spoken, and his communication to us is reliably recorded in his word, the Bible. We think what God says deserves to be heard and obeyed. It is the authority in the life of the church and its members. The first core value, top one. Everything else flows from this one. Now, our core values are, are playing out our mission, which is to make, be, to make, grow, and unleash disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of of God, right? So we're here to glorify God, but we believe one way that we do that is by submitting ourselves to the authority of the Bible. There is no authority higher than God's word. Now, we talked about this before, but I just think it's still helpful. You can, you can talk about authority in different ways, right? We talked about this. I can go over to Carson Newman, right? And if I park in the wrong spot, a guy's going to pull up in a smart car and he's going to put a ticket on my car. And do you know what I'm going to do with that ticket? I am going to throw it away. And I am not going to do a thing with it. You know why? Because he has no authority over me other than to say, you're not supposed to park here. And he's in a smart car, for crying out loud. And so he's got, he's got very limited authority. He can't hold my transcripts. I didn't go to school there. He can't, he can't find me. He can't do any of those things because he doesn't have that kind of authority. Now, if I go over here to Walmart and I park in a handicapped spot and I get a ticket from the Jefferson City Police Department, they have authority over me. I'm going to have to pay that ticket. If I do something wrong, I'm going to have to pay that ticket. 
And they've got a car that has sirens and is much more authoritative looking than that smart car is, right? So there's a different level of authority. Just And you can keep working, like, you work up to the state police, you work up to the FBI. Like, each one has more authority to do more things if I do something wrong. Does that make sense? Well, when we talk about the authority of the Bible, what we mean is there is no higher authority. That is what we submit to. We do not sit over Scripture. We sit under Scripture. That does not mean that we don't read Scripture and we determine what it means and we apply it and all those things, but we don't sit over it and say, Paul didn't get that right. Peter didn't get that right. They must have missed this one. That is not how that works for us. We say, I didn't get this right. I'm going to have to figure out what in the world Paul was talking about. That's the way that that works. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not uh, biblicists, which means that we kind of dissect the Bible and apply certain texts in certain ways, kind of picking and choosing our texts. We take the Bible as a whole and we see what it would, would it teach us. It is the heartbeat of this church, and it is what drives me. It's why I stand up here and teach every Sunday. It's why I do what I do. I have bet my life on this fact that the Bible is worth our lives. I stand here in a long tradition of men from the Reformation and well before them that believe we cannot simply let the Bible be a chore, but it must be the lifeblood for us as a believer. So let's go back to this idea of rooted. What you see is driven by what you don't see. So we talked to walk through all this. This is the stuff that you don't see, but what you do see is like this, me standing up here preaching. What you do see is that the word is central to what we do, both in the person of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. This is why I preach here on Sunday mornings. Let me let me let you in on a secret. Let me let me let me let you in on something here. So, do you think that I preach because the Bible says this is what you're supposed to do on Sunday mornings, you're supposed to preach. It doesn't really say that. It talks about singing. It talks about reading the Psalms. It talks about doing some different things like that. But it doesn't talk about preaching. And in fact, almost every sermon, almost every sermon in the New Testament doesn't happen in churches. It happens outside the church to non-Christians. Now, Paul gives instructions to read his letters to the churches whenever his letters go to the churches. I can make a pretty good case that the book of Hebrews is probably the assembling of two or three different sermons together for our teaching and our instruction today. But we're not told to stand here and preach. Do you know why I stand up here and preach? I stand up here and I preach because I believe that we need the Bible. Because that is how we know God. That's why we do it. Now, we're in this series where we're doing like these different topical things, but in the fall, we'll get right back in, and we're going to walk through a book of the Bible verse by verse. Why? Because that's what we need. You don't need my opinions. You don't need my motivational thoughts. We're not doing TED Talks up here. You don't, we, you don't need that stuff. That stuff's all great. That stuff's all helpful. But that's not how you know God. You know God through the application of the Scripture. What we are doing here when we gather, what I am attempting to do is open this word and say, this is what God has said. That's it. 
a big part of my job, honestly, I feel like is just enjoying the Bible in front of you guys. So that you guys will understand and you will see, if you don't see it for yourselves already, hey, there's something about what he's finding in there. I need to go in there and read that too. That's a big part of what I do. That's why I preach. And don't get me wrong, that can happen individually. That can happen uh, in your own like uh, devotional study. It can happen in your own readings. You can read the Bible for yourself and learn. I hope you are. That's one of my takeaways from this. I hope you walk away from this thinking, I need to be in the Bible more. But make no mistake about it. These letters and these Gospels are meant to be read and studied together in community. Most of the New Testament is addressed to churches as a whole, not to individuals. Let me also make clear, I want to make sure that we highlight this. There is a supernatural work that happens when a Christian reads his Bible. The Holy Spirit as is at work when we read and apply God's Word. We cannot utilize the Scriptures as they were intended without the work of the Spirit. And we should pray to be filled by the Spirit and that the Spirit would work these truths into our lives. And I firmly believe that the Spirit still speaks and works in our lives today. But He will never speak or work in our lives today contrary to what Scripture says. And I also am firmly convinced that He regularly will do it through what Scripture says. And that is the primary way in which the Spirit works in our lives. When you read the New Testament, the, the, the clear mandate for the Spirit that the Spirit has been given is not that the Spirit, that He speaks on His own, but instead that He, he speaks what He has been given. And write the words of Scripture and Jesus Christ on our hearts. There's a lot more I could say about that. I wish I could spend more time on that, but I can't. So what are we to make of all this? How, how do we walk away? Should we hand out Bible reading plans on your way out? Should I give you some Bible? There's some back there. I can give you some. That would be a great application for this sermon, to be honest with you. It wouldn't be a terrible idea. We can give some of those out. Should I guilt you into reading your Bibles more and shame you for not caring more about the Bible and and, and, and try to get you to do that. Any preacher worth his salt should be able to do that. They don't let you graduate unless you can do that, unless you can guilt trip people into reading the Bible. You should be able to do that. It's just part of the job requirement. It's part of what you have to do. And man, I hope you read your Bible. I do. I hope you read a real one with pages. I hope you read it on your phone. I hope you, you get the Dwell app and you listen to it and you, you, you let it kind of get in your heart as you mow or drive to work or do whatever it is that you do. I hope you memorize it. I hope you study it. I hope that question I asked you earlier will be one that kind of rings in your head and will haunt you for a little while because it's been haunting me. Why were these men willing to die for a Bible that we're not even willing to read? But hear me, the Bible is not an end of it. It's not an end to itself. My goal here is not to get you to fall in love with the Bible for the sake of falling in love with the Bible. It is the revelation of God. It is the God of the universe that has come to us and has chosen to tell us, here I am, and here's what I'm like. The purpose of the Bible 
is not that we might know more, have more knowledge, be, be puffed up. It's that we might behold the God of the universe and that we might weep with joy, that we might jump with delight, that we might see the majesty that is before us and above us. We do not worship our Bibles. Our Bibles teach us what it looks like to worship God. And that is, it may sound like a small distinction, but it is not. Our Bibles are there to teach us what it's like to worship God. So while we should be deeply moved by Scripture and profoundly thankful for this gift and that these men were right to give their lives to make sure the Bible got out there, we must recognize that it is a window that enables us to see God. I once stayed in a cabin in the Smokies, big old cabin. It holds like 35, 35, 40 people, one of, those, uh, one of those big old things that overlooked Lacan. So it was on a mountain right in front of you was Lacan. It was a beautiful view. It was, it was incredible. It had everything you could want a cabin. It had a pool table. had an arcade stuff. It had like massive living room with like six or seven couches, big old dining room. It had everything you could want. It was wonderful. But do you know what everyone in the cabin wanted to do while we were there? I mean, every now and then you get up and you go, you go play, a, you know, a, a game of pool or something like that. Do you know what most people did? They sat on those couches and they looked out the giant windows at the mountain that was right there. Or they went out on the big deck that was right out there so that they could see the mountain that was there. Everything in the cabin was oriented to the mountain. So that you could see the mountain. And you know, when people first got there, they kind of looked around like, oh, this cabin is amazing. Oh, this is great. Oh, that's cool. And then you like walk out on the deck and you're like looking up. Oh, look at all those windows. That's amazing. But then you turn around and you see the mountain. And the cabin kind of fades in the, in the background at that point. Because you're there seeing the majestic, the majestic mountain that is before you. As awesome as that cabin was. It's the windows that opened up to the majesty of the mountain. It's the deck that caused you to come out and look up and see the mountain that made you say, that's what this cabin is here for, that you can better take in the mountain. That's the way the Bible works. As awesome as it is, the reason it is here is so that we can walk out and we can say, there's God, that's who he is, that's what he's like, and here's what I need so I can be in relationship with that God. That's how the Bible works. We let the Spirit stir our hearts through the Word, and then we exalt in the majesty of God, enabled by the Spirit, communicated through the Word, given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to love your Bibles, but it's because I want you to know God. And Lord willing, I will spend the rest of my life in this path. I'm betting my life on it, and I'll end with this. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're betting your life on the fact that this Bible is doing just that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're betting your life that that book is not doing that. There is no, like, middle ground here. And so if that's true of us, and we're betting our life, and not just our life, our eternity, on the fact that God has revealed himself in that book, oh, man, let's recommit ourselves to know it.
Spirit would write its truth on our hearts. And that we would worship God as we are. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that we do not properly see the grace that has been given to us through your word and through your son. Father, I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives right now. I pray for everyone in this room that is in relationship with you, that we would be filled by the Spirit this morning. And we would not be filled by the Spirit in order to look for some other thing, but instead that you would fill our hearts, that you would fill our minds, and that you would draw us to the revelation that you have given us. Father, I pray for the things in this book that we have not read and that we do not know. That you would give us grace and that we would, we would be compelled to know those things. Oh, but Father, I pray more than anything for the things that we have read in this book and that we do know and that we fail to submit to. How desperately we need your grace. Father, I pray that you would just keep repeating the words that you have given to us, that your love endures forever, that your mercy knows no end, that we cannot plumb the depths of who you are and your love and your grace to us. Father, we count on that. We stand here this morning humbled exulting in the fact that you chose to tell us that that's what you're like. Father, may we never take that for granted. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together in response to what we've heard.